If you're hearing this, it means the magic is working. Hi, I'm Devin Person, wizard and host of this podcast as a ritual. In these uncertain times, we often find ourselves needing magical guidance, which I, as your wizard, am happy to offer. But unfortunately, the magic that allows you to hear this podcast, this recording right now, only works one way. And to work real, powerful magic, I need to be able to hear from you. So whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are, I invite you to call the Wizard Hotline at 860-415-6009. Leave a message with your question or quandary, and I'll provide magical advice in an upcoming episode. Once again, that number is 860-415-6009. Give us a call. Your destiny depends on it. In 30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is a ritual. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Those are the opening lines to Patti Smith's iconic album, Horses. Words that have swirled around my head since I first heard them, putting a fine poetic point on one of my core objections to Christianity. I never asked Jesus to die for my sins, so some Bible thumper badger me about it feels like a relative trying to guilt trip you because we sent you those socks for your birthday. It's like, hey, Aunt Kathy, I never asked for socks. I never even wore those socks. So no, you can't hold it over me just because you mailed me some ugly toe socks five years ago. My all-time favorite encounter with America's uniquely warped strain of evangelical Christianity occurred when I was in high school. I worked at a convenience store, and one night while taking out the trash, I found a folded-up $5 bill on the ground. I picked it up, and as I unfolded it, I was shocked to find that it was not, in fact, a $5 bill, but a piece of paper deceptively designed to look like one. When unfolded, it revealed a message saying, Disappointed? You won't be if you accept Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. The idea that you can prank someone or guilt trip them or torture them into Christianity never sat right with me, and it's one among several reasons why I've always kept Christianity at arm's length, even as saint veneration and other explicitly Christian practices have come back into vogue in the contemporary occult revival. But over the summer, I read Bob Dotto's new book, Sitting with Spirits, which approaches the topic of communing with spirits from an explicitly Christian framework, mixing lessons from Afro-diasporic sex, biblical verse, and Bob's own personal experience to create a text I found far more intriguing than off-putting. While I still lean more Gandalf of Middle-earth than Aslan of Narnia, Bob's call to rewild Christianity is compelling, asking readers to seek out the mystics in the margins, the cults and sects and traditions that occupy the untamed theology outside of papal dictate or American megachurches with their fire and brimstone worship of materialist capitalism. Which is why today we're going to ignore the castles and cathedrals to venture into grimy basements and back alleys to discover what awaits in the spiritual margins. And Bob will be our guide, a role he's well-suited for as a teacher and writer who, in addition to penning Sitting with Spirits, is the author of the anarcho-folk Catholic zine Babylon Begone and the host of the Wild Christianity Salon. So whether you're a devout Christian, a lapsed Catholic, a pagan, or an apostate, I think we can all agree that the time has come to tear down the garden walls, to overturn the soil, and sow seeds gathered long ago, as together we learn how 
to rewild Christianity. Oh, and one quick technical note before we get into the episode. You're going to hear a rustling sound at points, which is either the sound of Bob's beard touching the microphone or the whisperings of spirits. We'll let you decide. Hello, Bob. Hello, Devin. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you for having me. What's our magic word going to be today? I think it should be discernment. Ooh, that's a good one. Mm. Mm, you're a very discerning fellow to have picked a, such a fine word. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the subject I'm studying these days, so it's in the front of my mind. So let's, let's get into this. On the count of three, one, two, three, discernment. Great. Now, you said this is the subject you're studying. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, it actually ties into spirits and spirit work. Uh, I'm doing what are called Ignatian spiritual exercises these days. Um, Ignatius was a, is and was a saint in the Jesuit tradition. He was the founding of the Jesuits. Um, Around when, when, when was he alive? Oh, uh, good question. Uh, a number hundred years ago. So okay. uh, I don't have the exact dates in front of me, yeah. but he, he was a few hundred years back. And um, he, he came up, he was a mystic um, after living a very uh, lively, rebellious life um, and became a lively, rebellious mystic. And he, uh, he That's my kind of mystic. I mean, they tend to be that way, I think, the more I learn about them. Uh, and yeah, you know, he, he developed a number of what he called spiritual exercises, um, which are practices of uh, tuning in to God's will and, and sort of these big, big things, recognizing our blind spots. And one of the other exercises is the discernment of spirits, which, which I talk about in the, in the book. Um, and, you know, he had these, what he called rules for how to determine between spirits or discern between spirits. And the discernment of spirits is considered a gift of the Holy spirit. So Paul talks about this, um, in, in the Bible. And, uh, it's considered a gift, just like the gift of wisdom, the gift of healing, you know, all these, these various spiritual gifts. One of them is to be able to discern between different spirits and what their qualities may be and what their motivations may be. So I'm up to that section of the spiritual exercises. So the discernment is, is on my mind lately. It feels like a very relevant thing for today. Like we're bombarded by so many voices and perspectives and pieces of information, uh, both from without and within. And to be able to discern which of those you want to listen to seems like a very helpful skill. Yeah. You know, I, I think the power in that is to be able to have choice, you know, so you're not kind of being led around by all the voices, but you're able to, you know, it doesn't have to be super rigid, but you want to be able to say, okay, this voice tends to lead me down this path. And at the end of the day, I end up feeling like this. So maybe I'll take, follow a different voice, you know? Um, so Ignatius calls these movements, internal movements uh, to kind of tap into and, and, and feel into really. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a helpful skill. If you can, if you can make it. Well, I'm discerning the voice within inside myself that wants to to bring us back to the beginning of your path, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to know what your own religious upbringing was like. Yeah, so I was raised as an Italian Catholic, um, and by that it means I was culturally Catholic. So we rarely went to church. We went to church for you know funerals, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of lots of funerals uh, for Italians. Um, and, you know, maybe on Easter and things like that. But it was very much kind of uh, do your own thing, but make sure you be a good person. My mom's ethic was basically, you know, be a good person. <laughs> That's what that was her. Like she would say that constantly. You just be a good person. Um, but within that, I had all the cultural stuff that came with being a Italian Catholic. Um, I was actually German, Irish, and Italian, but my dad's side was full Italian. Uh, so that meant, you know, asking saints to find lost keys, um, crucifixes on the wall at my grandparents, uh, things like that, you know. And and I went to Catholic school for the first, well, up to second grade, and then I went into public school um, and pretty much abandoned it <laughs> as quickly as I possibly could. 
because it just seemed quite silly and, and stupid at the time, frankly, as a, as a young punk rocker, um, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so like any good teenage goth punk kid, I was like, well, that's, that's doesn't make any sense to me. And I'll look at other things. No gods, no masters, no gods, no masters. Uh, you know, it was a hard one to shake because I never, no gods. I, I, speaking of no gods, no masters, a friend of mine was just recently at a anarchist bookstore that I used to volunteer at in Philadelphia. And it reminded me of the no gods, no masters thing. Um, but I was always very spiritually, I was interested in spiritual stuff. So, you know, I might've jumped ship from Catholicism, but I jumped right into Buddhism, like as quickly ah. as possible. <laughs> and then I was friends with Hare Krishnas and, you know, I was just, and then on and on and on. I, I, I kept going and, and looking into all these other spiritual things. So um, that's where it yeah. started. I was, I was a teen agnostic. I, I never, mm-hmm. I, I thought the idea that God definitely didn't exist was as presumptuous as he definitely did exist. And so I think maybe God's no masters just doesn't have the same <laughs> ring to it though. Yeah. Maybe God's definitely no masters. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you moved into Buddhism and other mm-hmm. spiritual currents. Yeah. And then I think your take on Christianity is so fascinating. So I'm curious mm-hmm. about how uh, this started to become relevant to you and you got drawn back in. Sure. So I, even at that early age, when I was getting interested in Buddhism and um, yoga and the Hindu tradition and, and all this kind of stuff, and I, I, early on I had met, and I forget who it was, but I remember this story very clearly. I had met a kid at a show. I played in a band, and he was from Japan, and he we were talking and somehow my being into Buddhism came up and he was like, Oh, you're into Buddhism. That's weird. I was like, Oh, why? He's like, Oh yeah, that's like what my grandparents do. You know, that's, that's interesting. He he just thought it was kind of interesting that I was into Buddhism. And to me, that was really shocking because I just thought Buddhism was the coolest thing ever. And everyone was into Buddhism in my mind, you know, like even people from countries that are historically Buddhist. Um, But to him, it was like the religion of his grandparents. And it, it, the light bulb went off immediately, even back then, that I was like, oh, Christianity or, or Catholicism, because we didn't consider ourselves Christians. We considered ourselves Catholics. Um, I was like, oh, that's how I view Catholicism. So it just, that idea just kind of nagged at me over the next 20 years of being like, remember, you may be interested in these things, A, because they're interesting, these other religions, spiritual paths, but remember that they may not be as exotic as you think they are that Mm -hmm. what you grew up with may actually have the same stuff that you're finding elsewhere. And you also may have easier and more, it it may be more accessible to you because it's, it's the tradition you grew up in. Yeah. I think there's an interesting thing with the aging process where there's a, it's the same with cultural nostalgia. You move out of a decade and it's like, what was that decade? Like we can't even (laughs) describe it. And then you start to get, 10 plus years away from it. And then you're like, ah, the nineties, I can describe what is nineties <laughs> yeah. to you very well. And it starts yes. to develop a canon and things get removed and fondness grows. And I think that's similar where even in my own life, I was dragged on so many hikes as a kid when I wanted to be at home watching cartoons. And mm-hmm. then now as an adult, I'm like, ah, yes, a hike <laughs> brings yeah. me the fondness of my youth. Yeah, exactly. My dad with the oldies, you know, I remember he used to mm-hmm. always play the oldies on the radio and be like, someday you're going to thank me that I'm teaching about all these bands. And I was like, whatever, dad. And now I'm, I, you know, I listen to mostly music from the sixties and seventies, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so that's, that was what triggered it. And then about 10 years ago is when I really started to dive much more explicitly into that and sort of claiming it or reclaiming it as my own my own practices and tradition. Was there a trigger or a pivotal event that uh, signaled this? Yeah. So I moved through a number of what I went East as many young people do, and then started coming back West through Sufism um, and mystical, the, the mystic Christian tradition was certainly interesting to me, but it still felt a bit icky, a little too close to home. Um, Islam felt really good because it was like close to home, but also not. Mm-hmm. Um and then I, f- I found a saint called Santa Muerte, who you may know. Um, I do know Santa Muerte, yes. Yeah. So Santa Muerte was sort of introduced to me around you know, 2010 or something like that. And, and 
I was immediately, I was like, oh, here's the door. Because I kept looking for doors. I mean, I tried to get into this religion, back into this religion for many years through many different channels. And I always kept coming up against these walls of being like, this feels good. This feels good. Ugh, now I'm back into this stuff that doesn't feel good. This feels good. Ugh, now it doesn't feel good. And Santa Muerte, it was just, it just was all there. It was like, she was like, here's the door. You can come back in through me. And that was all it took. You know, and it's from, punk rock as hell. It's super punk rock, you know? And it was like, it's got a skeleton. There's, you know, darkness, but light. There's, you know, it had all the good stuff that, that you want. <laughs> I visited a, a Santa Muerte shrine in Oaxaca, Mexico, because I was at okay. the like one punk rock store and there was a flyer <laughs> on the door and I, in my, you know, okay to mediocre Spanish was like, oh, Santa Muerte, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, can I visit this? And the guy's like, yeah. And there's a map on the back, but it's you know been so photocopied and it's so vague. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to try and figure this out. And I go to some, not suburban, but very like residential like neighborhood. And I get I get to the like address and I'm like, what, what is going on? Like I'm in the middle, this is not it. And then suddenly I see a little sign and it's around the side and it's like, you go into this garage and then the garage is full of like eight foot tall Santa Muerte <laughs> statues and all of this other stuff. And it was, like, it was incredibly cool. That sounds the, about right. The yeah. offerings and things that people had left behind and all the various, uh, yeah, it was, it was a massive sh- garage shrine. Yeah. That that's, I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who ends up in these weird garages in suburban neighborhoods that don't look like one thing until you turn the corner. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing that for years, just finding little flyers and bodegas for stuff and being like, I'm just going to go check it out and just ending ending up in places and spaces that I would not have seen. And and yeah, <clears throat> that, that Santa Muerte scene that you describe sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I love the introduction to your book. I think it's, you know, especially for like a book on spirituality, it's so great to have this narrative introduction where you talk about going out into Queens, I think, to a botanica to attend. Um, is this, it's an espiritismo ceremony in the back, right? I'm getting that correct? Yeah. It, it's in Southern, it was in Southern Brooklyn and it Southern Brooklyn. was, yeah. And it was, um, uh, it's a, it's just called an Ile. So it's a house that has a few different branches of spiritual practice to it. One of which is the spiritismo. Mm-hmm. So that's where I ended up was in that during a night where they were doing a spiritismo. Was that another one where you, you found a flyer and you followed the breadcrumb trail? hundred percent. Yeah, it was, I had been going to some rosaries for Santa Muerte for a while. And, uh, there was one, this was r- relatively close to my neighborhood. So I thought, Oh, I'll just go check this one out. It's in Spanish. I'll be able to understand every third word, but, but you know, I'll check it out. And I ended up, <laughs> yes, Santa Muerte was there, but it was very much a night devoted to something else, which I had been looking for for quite some time. So it was uh, an auspicious little meeting. What was it that you think that you were looking for? Did you did you have a very clear and articulated um, desire you were trying to fulfill? So. You know, I thought I was looking for one thing and I came upon something else that seemed even more, I don't know about relevant, but but it, it felt quite relevant at the time. Uh, so I was looking for a Santa Muerte rosary, just trying to broaden the community because it is, while Santa Muerte devotion is, is vast and varied and, and it's considered the fastest growing religion uh, or religious sect, um, you know, they're, they're small niche communities. It's not like everyone I talk to knows or does anything with Santa Muerte. What is um, a Santa Muerte rosary, just to be clear? Oh, so a, a, a rosary in general is just your rosary that you would do to Mary on the rosary beads. A Santa Muerte rosary is just one devoted to Santa Muerte. So it's like a meditation and a, and a repetition, like a chanting. God, and then they'll have like a group that is doing that together live? Yeah, they'll, someone will lead it and it's a sort of call and response typically. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and you can do rosaries on your own. You know, in the Catholic religion, rosaries, there's many of them. There's yeah. the ones to marry and the ones all the other saints and stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the Santum where Tistas, they have, they, they consider themselves Catholic often. Um, and so they use rosaries to, to honor and pray to Santa Muerte. So that's what I thought I was attending. Um, but it turned out I was attending more of a spirit spirit work gathering in the spiritismo uh, tradition. 
Take us through that experience. Uh, you, you describe it so well in the book. I'd love to just give a, a taste to everybody else. Yeah, sure. It's kind of like what you described um, with your experience. You know, I, I had the address and uh, I, I found my way down there and I, I parked my car in this sort of, it wasn't an alley, but it was, you know, New York is very much a grid. But mm-hmm. as you get south Brooklyn, it stops being, it's grid-like. Uh, <laughs> but then there's these kind of like offshoots and little roads that go over here. And it's, it was in a, it's in a neighborhood called Gravesend, which is even better. Perfect. Um, <laughs> which itself has a really fascinating history. Uh, but it was in Gravesend. And there was this road that was kind of off the grid, uh, not literally, but off the, the grid of the streets. And um, it kind of felt like an alley. There was abandoned lots and things like that. And there was no sign. Uh, and and I was familiar with the setting before. So I kind of knew what to look for-ish. Um, I just wanted to look for this a This wasn't door. your first rosary. This wasn't my first rosary. And it certainly wasn't my first time going into an area. I had no idea what to expect. I, I put myself... That's where all the good stuff is, I find. So... Yeah, I've, I've done it. You know, it's just like um, four inches beyond your comfort zone. Exactly, exactly. And I waited outside for quite some time. I don't really mention it too much in the book, but you know, I stood outside wondering, should I go into this? Once I realized where the door was, uh, you know, should I or should I go into this? Like, what am I actually getting myself involved in? Because it was clear that this space was a basement of what looked like a hardware store. Um, so you know, I had no idea who these people were. But they were immediately friendly, you know, um, as people often are in these communities. And, and yeah, I, I walked down the stairs and, and, and it was uh, what I expected to see was a rosary setting. And typically a rosary setting is people sitting, maybe all facing one direction towards the statue of whoever you're praying towards. In this case, it would be Santa Muerte. But in this case, it wasn't. People were sitting in a big circle and they were dressed mostly all in white, which isn't common in a rosary either. Um, so I immediately knew that I was in some other setting and, uh, and I kind of thought I knew what I was, what I was there for. Like, I, I, I know, I know a bit of this house is, is a Lukumi house or a Santeria house. So I, I knew what that looked like. And I kind of felt like, okay, that's where I, that's where I am. And that was a religious path that I was really very interested in. So I had kind of found, found it by accident. Were you just there on the wrong night or had you misread the information? It, it sounds like you were trying to go to an AA meeting and you walk in and everyone's talking about how they can't stop masturbating. And you're like, I think, <laughs> yeah, right. I think this is maybe not what I thought I was going to. Right. I think I think what happened was that this, the rosary either took – this is a Latin American community and it's mm-hmm. a Mexican community. Um, and Mexican time is different than North American time. Um, and I've talked to the people there many times about this. You know, if I, if, you know, if I set something up and I say it starts at 7 p.m., my friends need to be here at 6.55, you know, yeah. if it starts at 7. When I go to the ELA, something says it starts at 7, it might start at 9, 9.30, 10, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a really beautiful thing to try and get used to that. And I think what happened that night was that uh, things just started at different times. You know, I showed up at a time I thought it was starting and I think the rosary might've happened later or before it all took place. It just took place on a different time schedule. Non-linear. Non-linear and a little, and frankly, a lot more familial and, and, uh, and leisurely, you know, the spirituality that, that I'm used to with my friends and, and stuff is very much like we do this now at this time and the lights go down, everyone put their phones away and, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. You know, in that community, it's, it's a lot more casual because the spirituality is just, it's woven into the fabric of, of life, you know. When I, when I read about this experience, I felt uh, I could relate so strongly because I had an experience where I was on Bushwick Ave in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I was actually just running from like a, a, like a noise show to go get juice <laughs> at the little Mr. Kiwi, and I walked past this Botanica, and this is like, I don't know, it's like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and I look up 
and over and there's all of the different idols in the window including mm-hmm. a giant Ganesh statue and I'm mm-hmm. like all right I've had a lot of Ganesh synchronicities later like that's cool and then I look down and the the bulkhead cellar doors are open and smoke is just wafting out <laughs> and I just had this moment where I said yes and I just walked it down into the mm. into the building and it was totally uh, like Kundomble like Santeria kind of ceremony happening mm-hmm. and people are smoking cigars and drinking rum mm-hmm. and dancing around and I, I tried to talk to someone in my Spanish to get a sense of what was happening and it, it did not go that well just due to misunderstanding mm-hmm. but then as I was walking out this guy walked past me and then he turned and he stopped me like grabbed me by the wrist he's like who are you in a very friendly way it wasn't threatening mm-hmm. and I was like oh I'm you know coming to check this out he's like you're welcome to be here and I'm like oh that's so great but I uh I, I think I'm gonna like go on and meet some friends but this is really cool I'd love to come again he's like yes let me give you my my number I was destined to meet you and like mm-hmm. exchanged info and then he uh invited me to come back as guest and yeah it was it was very similar to what you've described uh just it's so funny all these things happening in basements that you would walk past and otherwise have no idea a hundred percent, you know, and, and I mean, I can just so much that you just said that I want to speak to, but, but the community, the Centuria community, Lakumi community at, at first glance seems very distant and removed and secretive. And it is in a lot of ways, but it's also extremely welcoming for anyone who has a, who has a, a, a genuine interest, you know, and is not mm-hmm. really a tourist because they get a lot of tourists because botanicas are obviously public and on the streets. So you know, they get a lot of people who just kind of dabble, but they also get people who are genuinely interested. So I hung out in Botanicas for 10 years trying to get someone to invite me into the back room to something cool. <laughs> and like, I just couldn't, couldn't make it happen. I asked questions, uh, you know, I tried to like flex my spiritual background. None of it worked, you know, um, which is why this meeting was, I think, so important to me because it was seemingly accidental that I was, I had been looking for this community for a very long time. And, and then you were trying to go to something else and then there it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to go to the AA and end up at the masturbation group, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like, that's where I need to be. <laughs> um, but also the idea of the basements, you know, it, it, I, I always, I think I always found like marginal, seemingly marginal, uh, or religion in the margins as very punk rock. You know, they happen in basements. They produce zines. Yeah, it's all the same stuff. You know, it's just talking about a slightly different version of reality. You know? Yeah, I mean, if you wanna if you wanna buy the the finished hardcore seven inch, you got to go to the specialty shop. <laughs> same thing with the uh, the the specific saint idol or the the tincture, the oil, or whatever it is you're looking for. It's at the botanica. Absolutely. I mean, so many of those old prayer books. Um, are handwritten and then copied by someone else and sent around. It's like getting an old VHS copy of, you know, uh, Trent Reznor's snuff video or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the rose, the rosary mixtape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as you were exploring these botanicas and all of this, um, what, what was your relationship with spirits? Like, did you have a, a, a moment where you suddenly made contact or has it been a very gradual process? I would say super gradual. Um, I, I'm not one. T- I, I have big, profound experiences, but they don't read at least the way I hear other people. Other people s- seem to be having these experiences like on the daily, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm like hyper intellectual about a lot of stuff that I kind of resonate up up in the head a lot. So it it takes me a moment to actually settle down into the heart and into the body, where, where a lot of this stuff happens mm-hmm. you know spirit communication is very somatic um so i had like i say in the book i had a belief in the idea that spirits could be a part of a person's life or that spirits existed right i, I had a belief just because i had read a lot and i started to be like yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. you know it was very much like it makes sense so i believe in it and what i realized that night which was a spirit meeting is that the belief in it didn't really, it got me in the door, you know, it put me in the right place, but it doesn't really get you to where you need to be as far as communication or experiences uh, for for various reasons, but in in part because unless you understand how spirits behave, you can't speak to spirits. Um, You know, they like certain things, different traditions have different ideas of what the spirits are, have affinity for. And, Without knowing that, you know, it's hard to coax them into your space. 
you know? So, so yeah, I believed in them. I, I, I thought it was an interesting idea and it made sense to me, but I didn't have enough to really participate until, until later. Well, I think our culture suffers from a, um, it's hard for us to discern things that are subtle. Like if we're going to try some herb, I've seen so many like herbalism classes and I, I can look around the room and I'm like, everyone wants this to be marijuana. Like even though you could like order marijuana from a delivery <laughs> service, like you're expecting this to be the same as hitting a joint and you're like, whoa, yeah, okay. I feel that. that, that that's doing a thing that's like undeniable. And a lot yeah. of plants are just more subtle than that. And I think similarly, we're very much conditioned by culture whether that's like new age books or movie and television to be like, ah, yes, I'm going to sit in the basement. And if I do this right, Casper will appear in front of me, will be as clear as anything else that I could see, will speak in an audible voice and will tell me something that is just obviously so not my own mind speaking. And I I think that that's probably not accurate for most people's experience. (laughs) That's very funny. And I am definitely the first guy at the, at the herbalism course. (laughs) I'm like, so wait, burdock does what? Like, yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to feel? I mean, yeah. I even asked when I was first looking interested in herbs, you know, the, the person I was speaking to, I was like, you need to give me something that's a heavy hitter just so I can get, just so I can get the belief. <laughs> the thing that tells me to believe it first. That there's um, something here that's worth investigating. Yeah. And then I'll sort of backtrack into the more subtle stuff, which is which I, what I did over time. But what did but they yeah, give you? Uh, kava. <laughs> <laughs> Kava's great. Great. I mean, fantastic. I mean, that was the perfect one to give me. It was like, make this brew, grind this root, and you will feel it on your tongue, your lips, and you'll feel it in your muscles. And I was like, yep, okay, I believe in herbs. <laughs> and it, it, I think it's a nice one because it's, it, it's very much that threshold because it's still not the same as like, here, drink this giant glass of whiskey, and it, it's like not quite as like hit you over the head, but it's right. still – it's noticeable. It does a thing. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So that was my intro, intro into herbs. So what was your intro into spirits? When did a, when, what was it like when you first felt a, a spirit start to make contact? So there were, there are two instances I can think of. One was on my own and one was in, in group with this group that I ended up being a part of. Uh, I, on my own, before, when I was still interested in like more Hindu deities and, and working in that realm, um, I would do make offerings to Kali. Of course, it has to be Kali with the skulls and everything. Uh, so, Kali, Santa Muerte. I'm starting yeah, to notice a theme I here. Know. It's so just obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I had had a pretty profound experience in a number of uh, situations where I was praying and and, and making some some simple offerings, um, to Kali and they were kind of out of body experiences, uh, and they were extremely visceral. Uh, and I had not used any plant medicines. I was not doing anything like that. It was, it was vibes only, um, (laughs) and plant medicine or vibes, but, uh, but just to make some distinction there, pure Um, vibes, yeah, pure vibes and candlelight, you know. So uh, it was just very, it was it was very profound, um, and the sensations were entirely physical, and uh, I, I was kind of hooked. I was like, okay, all right, you can, yeah. if you want to, you can you can approach this and 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 be in this kind of an environment. And then in the group setting, I had similar experiences, but I was very hesitant in the group setting because I was very shy. Mm-hmm. about getting it wrong or, you know, cause everyone else who was in that, the group setting, you know, they'd go, they'd go into full possession, which is a different, a different situation. Yeah. Um, and I, I was very hesitant to allow myself to do that. Um, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Um, well, I imagine there's a lot of like imposter syndrome. Like, like even if you're a sincere seeker, you're like, well, I wasn't raised in this culture. I wasn't brought into this by someone in the neighborhood who like, you know, I grew up with mm-hmm. and are, are they going to see if I got possessed, is that going to come off like acting or like be seen as like insincere or like showboating or whatever else it might be? hundred percent. And that, that was the voice in my head was like, oh, this isn't real. You're, you're just make you're, you're, you're forcing it, you know, you're forcing it. And, and so, yeah, so all that gets in the way, which they would attribute to spirits, you know, in the group 
that I was with, they would say, well, those are just other spirits talking to you and we need to kind of weed them out and let your guiding, you know, the one who's in charge actually take charge. Right now you have too many speaking to you. That was something that was told to me very early on. Uh, you got too many spirits vying for your attention. Uh, uh, hashtag relatable. I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, ah, right. oh, a Saturday afternoon with nothing to do. And then like 80 spirits are like, do this activity. And I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's part of that. That world is, is, is a, a form of discernment, right? Is, is trying to figure out through divination and other practices and through just practice to try mm-hmm. and figure out which one are we should be, be paying attention to here and which ones are kind of more just, you know, annoyances or whatever. When did one start to come through? Were you, what, what helped you get more in touch with it? So in, in Lukumi, they do most of this through divination. So it's an, it's an elaborate divination process using multiple shells and, um, and offerings and long readings, what are called dilagoon readings. And that is one way to discern who your spirits are by asking questions to Alegua. Alegua is an Orisha in the, mm-hmm. in the center of the Lukumi tradition. Um, so there's, there is a quite practical approach to it in some sense, which is we're just going to ask, who is it? And then we're just going to find out what they look like, what their deal is, what they're, why they're here. You know, so that, that's how a lot of it functions. But then there's also the kind spirit, of spirit announce yourself. Kind of. ASL. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Kind of. It's like, in fact, the first reading I got, uh, the padrino, who's who is my godfather in the religion, he he was like, I don't know what to tell you, but like this reading keeps getting closed. Like I can't move forward in it, so I'm just going to put the reading aside and tell you what I'm getting because it it just kept closing down the reading. Um, the browser was crashing, kind of, yeah. And uh, and then we got to it. We got a good, a better sense of who this spirit was, and then the. the the ultimate test is to then start talking to it and working with it and asking it and seeing if it's, if it's real, you know? And, and so I did, and it felt quite, quite present. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that's kind of how that got discerned, so to speak. And I think one of the other like interesting things about the difference between spirits and when you go deeper into these practices and the sort of mainstream understanding is uh, spirits are very diverse. There's all kinds of spirits. I've had uh, Mallory Vaudois on here who talked mm-hmm. about spirits of place and uh, just the location, um, but they can be different entities or energies or, or, or thought patterns or whatever it might be. But then in the traditions that you've talked about, it's all of those plus actual uh, deceased people who have remnants that have hung around, right? A hundred percent. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Mallory because her her take on spirits of place is amazing. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, it's such an important, important aspect that often gets overlooked. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, the, there is quite literally the idea that uh, spirits are the remnants of people who have who have passed, who are in need of some. They for some reason they are lingering, and part of the work is to elevate them, and part of the work is to learn from them and and become a companion of them, and vice versa. Um, so yeah, that that's. A literal thing there. Now I'm going to ask a very self-serving question here, mm-hmm. uh, but I just moved into a haunted house, and mm-hmm. I, I know that the previous owner um, uh, died of an overdose at a you know younger age than. I mean, you don't want that to happen in any age, but um, you know it was definitely a tragic death, and it's also a 120 year old house. So like, who who knows what other shits happened mm-hmm. in here before that? Um, what advice do you have for? Uh, connecting with these spirits in a positive way and, uh, you know, cohabitating. The first thing, this is a more broad look at it. And I actually learned this in Islam and in the Sufi tradition way Mm. back when, which was that in Islam is strictly monotheistic. So there's nothing above God. So in that religion, no matter the nature of the spirit, they, they too submit to God's will. So that was very helpful to me, learning that, that no matter how nefarious or whatever a spirit may feel, they too need to do their five prayers a day. Um, So that was very helpful to me just for my mindset, just being like, okay, you know, they have, they serve a higher power as well. Um, Aside from that, uh, you know, one way is to, if you feel the presence of the spirit is to first ask it 
to take three steps back. And this comes out of a book called Mesa Blanca um, by a, by a, an Espiritismo who I, uh, uh, who I mentioned, uh, sorry, a medium, a spirit medium who I mentioned in the book, uh, to ask it to take three steps back so that you get a little bit of distance from it first, right? And then from there, you kind of ask it, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? What, what's your purpose? What are you looking for? Um, what do you need? You know, what do you need right now that you're not getting? You know, a question that I ask in the book or I have people ask in the book is asking the spirits what they want versus what they need. Mm. Um, that comes from Lama Sultram, who is uh, the author of the book, Feeding Your Demons. It's a Tibetan Buddhist take on spirits and demons. That's useful discernment for living beings as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That the Buddhists have have been very good at employing psychology in, into their spirit work and demon work, and demonology. Um, so yeah, it, it translates into the mundane, so so called mundane world as well. Well, the uh, the practice that you were talking about of uh, there being multiple spirits and you have to get to the kind of primary one mm-hmm. reminded me so much of uh, I, I do internal family systems therapy and it's very similar where you have all of these different parts and you're trying to sort of see what each one wants and what patterns each one is stuck in. And as you negotiate almost like truces amongst them, you're <laughs> trying to get closer to that root one that is the uh, higher self or whatever you want to call it that is often able to be so much more compassionate and present and wise and helpful um, as opposed to the, the minor parts that are masquerading as being all important, but really they have a, a pretty tight loop that they're trying to perpetuate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of crossover and I think it's a really good crossover um, between spirit work and, and spirit discussions and psychology and interpersonal dynamic um, stuff, you know, uh, there's a lot of it there. Yeah. Now you have another thing that you talk about towards the end of the book where I think you kind of really pull a lot of threads together. And this is the idea of rewilding Christianity. <laughs> I'd love for you to give an overview for, for everyone tuning into this, who I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who have uh, a lapsed Christianity or uh, <laughs> a, a complicated relationship to Christianity. And I thought your perspective was very fascinating. Right. So rewilding Christianity, but, what I found very quickly was that this religion is vast and it's varied. And while many people try to project a singular narrative about what it is and what it means to be Catholic or Christian or in, involved in the Christ tradition, it sounds a bit cliche, but it, it is as varied as there are people. But even more specific than that, there are so many people in the history of this religion who many of us of similar, you know, political, musical, noise band, all that kind of stuff backgrounds might find affinity with. Um, Just as we might when we look to say India and we see these sadhus, you know, living in caves, naked, covered in ashes. Smoking hella weed all day, every day. Exactly, right? And and to me, that was very attractive. And I was like, well, that's obvious. Those are obviously the real deal. And, and, that, yeah. and you know, these people in their, these priests in their very refined robes and stuff, that's all pomp and stuff. But the truth is, is that this religion has all those sadhus as well. Just many of them were burned at the stake mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Uh, they were kind of snuffed out, but they're all there and their writings are still there as well. Um, So for me, it's been extremely important. And it's something that I recommend other people who are interested in this is to go back and find those people, find the brethren of the free spirit, find out about the Adamites, find out about the ranters and the diggers and the levelers, uh, find out about the Muggletonians. You know, these are all wild eyed, radical people and groups who had very, very, uh, I hate to use the word radical again, but very radical takes on, on mm-hmm. this theology um, that many people I think would, while you not, might not agree with everything, would seem as at least part of our lineage. you know. Um, and it's, I think it's our job for those of us interested in this to reclaim those people and, and sort of center them, bring them back into the fold uh, because their voices should be heard. They are powerful interesting voices 
So I have two stumbling blocks. And, and when we originally talked about doing this podcast, you were like, please, like, oh. <laughs> yes. I've also had, you know, things that kept me at arm's length with Christianity. Sure. And so I, I'm, I'm constantly like reading things that are adjacent or getting closer. And then I have two stumbling blocks that I'll, I'll reach and I'll have, that's kind of where I don't go any further. Mm-hmm. And one is the issue that I have of the, the primary view of seeing God and existence as being separate, as like God created earth and man, but we are not God and it's, we are definitely steps below. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of hierarchy, I think, gets me a little bit off. I'm curious about your, your take on that or what sources you found. So, yes, that would have been an extremely difficult and was an extremely difficult thing for me to reconcile early on, especially. Um, and it was why I, when I, even when I, I, I became a Muslim for about four or five years there, back in the day, it took me years to figure that out too, because I had such a hard time with this idea of God being this felt as this very other thing. But it was very, once you start stumbling upon the mystics, Mm -hmm. the mystics get it. Mm -hmm. You know, the mystics don't see God as separate. Um, And there's also this idea that someone recently hit me to, which is, I don't have the correct term for it in my mind, but the idea that the stuff we learned about Christianity, if we were born into that culture and that religion, because we left it early, we left with what they taught us as children. Mm. And what they taught children is not what they teach adults, right? And it's a, it was very kind of like uh, confronting to me to hear that because a lot of what, even in my earlier writings about this, a lot of what I was like ranting about was stuff that they teach kids, Mm-hmm. It's not what Meister Eichhardt was saying. It's not what the Christian mystics have been saying. It's what they taught you in CCD, which is like God is above and he looks down and he has a beard. And, yeah. you know, once you grow up, kind of, the grownups don't talk that way. You know, certainly not the mystics. But that, I was going to say, I think, I think um, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but I think American Christianity has a problem with being kind of stunted and that a lot of people have clung to a very fundamental literalism that keeps them in this like, you know, Sunday school narrative instead of advancing to a more nuanced thing. And it's, it's, you know, ah, I've gotten out of Sunday school and now we can have a more advanced conversation about how God's going to punish all the sinners and why uh, these politics are the right way and kind of, you know, pat ourselves on the back for being um, in the good group because this is the church that we belong to. It seems like there's maybe, um, I, I know that it exists. I've met plenty of very thoughtful, very interesting, very intelligent Christians, right. but it seems like that narrative is so much harder to find um, in our culture, whereas we've exported a lot of the highbrow uh, commentary and wisdom from Eastern culture, so it's more readily available. So, so two things to that. One is that the other thing I tell people is you have to want it. You can't, you're not going to find the goods if you don't want to. And it's the same thing if we take it back to music and punk rock and all that kind of stuff. No yeah. one's going to, you're not going to just stumble upon the coolest noise band around. You have to go look. That record store that sells noise music is in the basement of a record store in Lower East Side. Yeah. It was, you know, it was called Hospital Records. It was literally in, in a hole in the floor. Like that's where you find it. And if you want to find the good stuff, you have to dig. You have to dig like any DJ digs for records, you know, it takes time and it takes effort and you stumble upon, you get a lot of bad records at first, you know, um, you end up in a lot of dead ends, but if you want it, you'll find it, you know? Um, so that's one thing that mm-hmm. I think is really important. The other thing is I just want to just give a little bit of a problematize the idea that God isn't separate because that's also something that I've come to have uh, come to not accept as the governing principle, but allow to be an idea because the idea that God is, we are God and God is us is a very unique idea around the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking from animists to pantheists to panentheists to, you know, that's unique to, that's a very Western, that's a very modern Western understanding of, of God. Um, most cultures and religions see God and spirits as separate, you know, and it's about relationship because that's what religion is, is about reconnecting. So the idea of God being separate, I would say just as an idea, just to set aside, 
mm-hmm. is an interesting idea to work with and practice with because it's not so much that it's prescriptive, meaning God is separate, but the idea that God is separate is an expression of what we feel already, right? We in us, the Sufi- we do feel separate. Like We do feel separate, mm-hmm. right? So it's less like we feel separate because God is separate. It's that God feels separate until God isn't. Right. And it's that work of bridging that gap is the work, literally, really gare. Ah. Right. So, you know, some people can be like, God is separate. But it's like, that's just all noise. The, the fact is, we feel separate. Yeah. That's the fall. The fall is the expression of what people feel. It's not prescriptive. It's like, we feel separate. We feel this disconnect. Religion to really gare is to reconnect. So mm-hmm. it's all process, you know? That's a very interesting point that you bring up because I think when you go in the other direction, uh, whether it's the New Age translations of this idea or uh, a more original uh, Buddhist or Vedanta source, but the idea that we are all one thing, that, that separatist is an illusion, I think makes a lot of intellectual sense. Like mm-hmm. I can I can really grok, you know, there's a big circle and if you circle everything that ever is, then that's that's all that there is and there's nothing left to circle and there's nothing that the circle even divides with and, you know, it's a whole head trip. But at the end of the day, at the end of reading that book, I'm still an individual being that feels myself as an individual being and relates to other people as separate and unique and as other and that's very interesting to think of. You can you can kind of start at either place and work towards and until you feel that, that's the, the moment that the transition occurs. 100%. Yeah, it, you can start from either side. And, and those Vedantists were still doing puja. You know, those Vedantists mm-hmm. were still doing things to honor the gods, you know, to honor Shiva or to honor Brahma. Oh, yeah. Lay yeah. Buddhism is very different than uh, like... 21 year old college philosophy student Buddhism. Like right. Yeah. Yeah. So you can come at it from all these different angles. Trigam Trungpa, you know, from, from Shambhala Buddhism and, and, and Naropa and all that, you know, he was very fond of saying, look, meditation is kind of ridiculous, but you have to, you have to do it. Right. You know, you, you, that's where you start and it might be where you end, but it, it, it meditation, the act of meditating, uh, solidifies the idea that there is a separation between meditation and the meditator, but you have to do it. It's what you do, you know? Got to do those reps. You got to do the reps, you know? All right. So stumbling block number two is is a real biggie, Mm -hmm. but uh, the idea of sin Mm -hmm. has always kind of sat weird with me. And then especially the idea that uh, Jesus died for my sins and there was this big sacrifice I would love your take on that because that's been, always been one that's been very hard for me to kind of process and, and really get on board with. Well, first, these are ideas. So mm-hmm. Jesus died for your sins is one idea, and it's not held by all Christian denominations. Um, it's, it's a dominant one. It's one that we hear a lot, but it is not the only one. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's an idea. Um and it's not even an idea that they agreed upon very early on in, in back in the found, founding years of this religion. Um, but the idea of sin, that is something that I have worked on and struggled with and unpacked since the beginning, because I, like you, that is a stumbling block or was certainly a stumbling block. To this day, when I do the Hail Mary prayer, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. I often say, pray for, uh, pray for, oh, pray for us who miss the mark now and at the mm. hour of our death, um, because sin, sin is an experience. It's not a a, a fault, or it's not a thing that you did. It's the experience of separation. It's very hard to have the experience that that is what it is because the word sin has been so intensely driven into us as a culture. And the word itself, just the, the, the S-I-N, just the sound of it is mm-hmm. so penetrating. It's a um, noun. It's, it's like when it's not, an, it doesn't come across in most culture as an experience. It comes across as a list, like very Santa Clausy, and like you're naughty or you're nice. And here's the yeah. things that are going to get you on the naughty list. Don't do them. Yeah. I mean, 
it's, it is a practice to unpack the nature of sin and what sin is and what sin means to you and, and how it functions in your life is a practice. And I think thoughtful Catholics and thoughtful people in the Christ tradition work with that for years, if not their whole life, to try and unpack that because there is this resistance to it. We don't want to see ourselves as being bad. Uh, and I think for me, what's been most helpful is to check that a little bit. I don't really care if someone thinks I'm sinful or it's just not very important to me. But what's interesting to me is what's my resistance to recognizing the ways in which I show up short, Mm. you know, that to me is helpful. That's useful. Right. Um, because not everything we'd like to think that like, well, everything I do is, is, you know, of God, or, you know, uh, if you are angry at what I said, that's about you, you know, like there is this theme and thread in new age spirituality that is just not useful. So, you know, looking into the shadow is looking into my blind spots is useful and helpful and important. And to me, that's where the idea of sin falls. It's looking into those blind spots um, and checking them, you know, exploring them. Not all of those blind spots are bad. In fact, most of them are quite fine. I just need to like check them out, you know. To investigate them. Yeah, I th- that's really fascinating. And I think yeah. that there's something there where at first I was kind of thinking of this idea of like, oh yeah, it's like out of alignment. Like we all can wake up and say, these are the things I'm going to do today and then watch as for whatever reason we do all of them or none of them. And we feel so guilty and bleh when we're really, you know, trying to go to the right and we keep pulling to the left. But I think there's also a very, I mean, Protestant capitalist American idea of like productivity and I have to be effective and do these things. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that the the sin concept does lend itself to not thinking in terms of willpower. It's not like, how do I just like grit my teeth and grind it out? But how do I release into some larger power that can understand my weakness and still help me through it? Yeah. I mean, the, the whole Jesus mission is in the, the biblical expression of it. The stories is almost entirely about engaging with people at their lowest points, engaging with people in their blind spots, engaging with people in their shadows. Um, it, it, it's, it's what he did as a mystic, you know, however you want to interpret him um, as, a, as a historical or metaphorical being, you know, what he did was met people in their, in their low points and in their darkness spots um, and then go from there. You know, I was just reading, you know, part of what I do is, is, is meditate on passages and read passages out of the Bible and stuff. And, um, you know, there's the famous one where he says, I didn't come to call people who aren't sinners. I came to speak to the sinners. You know, that's who I want to talk to. That's who I want to be around. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's, if you see Jesus, if you start to see Jesus less as like a father figure who's going to tell you whether you're right or wrong and more as like Christ consciousness, Mm-hmm. right? Which is, the, you're starting to get into the, the mystical aspect. If we see it as Christ consciousness, Christ consciousness is looking out for those shadows. The consciousness is looking out for those shadows. It wants to go there because that's where the, the goods are. You know, the stories, the parables are all about a person. God loves a person. Mo- What's the parable? It's, it's a, uh, God is most enamored with the person who has sinned the most, who t- takes one step back than the person who has been entirely righteous. That's mm. a huge thing that doesn't get mentioned. And that's, you find that all over, but there's specific parables that talk specifically about that. That God is most interested in the person who sinned the most, but who made a turn. If you're righteous your whole life, who cares? That's fascinating. I've had a similar thought about that with um, with being progressive and having progressive values, mm-hmm. because there's the people who were raised in a very, you know, racist, homophobic, whatever you want to call it, environment, and then have worked to have a much more heartfelt and open appreciation for the world. And the world has changed a lot since they grew up. And there's some things that they're not quite getting right, but they, their their journey has taken them very far. And I see people who were raised extremely progressive and are much younger. And so the world has not shifted quite as much being quick to be like, oh, that person said the wrong thing. And I'm like, no, but like, if you appreciate like 
that person's kind of more progressive than you are because they came from there and they've they've gotten this far. And that's really beautiful, I think, when you see someone who uh, has opened their mind and their heart to um, to new ways of being like that. 100%. I mean, the perspective, I am most enamored and most inspired by people who have the history of other ways of thinking and, and come to this work, you know, political work, for example, mm-hmm. um, because they have a perspective that's just not there if you didn't if you didn't come from it, you know, I didn't come from my household is Trump people. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They're right. They're Italian Americans, you know, the typical right-wing conservative Italian Americans who traded up their Italianness for whiteness. Um, you know, I think that gives me a particular uh, good perspective on where these people are coming from, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from me, it's just the people that have most inspired me have had a richness of complexity to their background. Um, that they're not entirely proud of every aspect of it, but they're the ones that I hear their words just ring so much more true. You know, there's a lot of bite to what they say now that they're on my team. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I I think uh, one of my favorite teachers at community college was a gay man who had been raised in Wyoming in a very religious environment and then had gone to an ex gay Christian ministry to like have the gay prayed out of him and then had rejected that worldview and had embraced his homosexuality and accepted it. And he was the most fascinating person because he knew the Bible backwards and forth. He could quote it back to you and he could explain why the quotes that were being used to demonize homosexuality were being taken out of context and were problematic and weren't um, nearly as cut and dry as the uh, politicized Christian movement wants to make it out to be. Absolutely. I mean, think about, you know, I, I mentioned this a lot that when we think about like who Jesus hung around with. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Like when people say, Oh, we hung around with prostitutes and stuff like that. And like, isn't that, that's so Jesus of him. And I'm like, no, you have to actually put yourself there. He's hanging out with sex workers, actual sex workers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they're hanging out, meaning they're not just like, it's not that he's just preaching all day long. They're sitting around, they're eating, they're talking, they're laughing. They might be talking about politics. They're doing these things. He's very much engaging with this community right? And mm-hmm. that's who he keeps around him. Why? Because that's, those are the most important people to him. Those people who see both sides. Blessed are the meek. Yeah. Right. All right. We're going to switch into our spell portion and I would love if we could come up with a spell for both sitting with spirits and one for rewilding Christianity. Okay. Okay. I'm going to follow you. I, I, I'm curious how we do this. Well, the idea is you're you know you're just going to break off a little piece, like okay. you know if 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 somebody that's listening to this was like, wow, okay, like you you really spoke to me. I want to take the first step on this path. I gotcha. want to connect with spirits, or yeah, like what can I do to uh, nurture that little spark of Christian Christian belief that uh, I've pushed away and now I'm interested in rekindling. So mm-hmm. it, it's the first step on each of those paths. Maybe it's the same step, but oh. oh. Got it. I got it. Shall I, shall I do this? Take us away, Bob. Okay. So the first thing I would say as a spell is to use your dictionary as an oracle. Um, Our religious traditions come from language, come to us through language and exploring and unpacking the language has for me been one of the most spell like magical experiences that I've ever had has been taking maybe one word, going to the dictionary, figuring out all the definitions. You could take the word hand Mm -hmm. and just look at all the ways in which the word hand has been defined. Look at the etymological root of the word hand. Where does it come from? Or the word sin and let the word open up because our words come to us very refined, very one dimensional. And the spell that I would recommend for reading a spiritual text is to take specific words that are stumbling blocks for you and allow them to open up as broadly as you possibly can. Let them go as wide as they can until you feel like you can step into them and start engaging with them. So that would be a spell like activity that I would recommend. In the beginning was the word. Exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Bob. Sure. You're welcome. For more of Bob's work, Find him on Instagram at New Old Traditions. 
And in the little link thingy on the bio, you can find where to get your own copy of Sitting with Spirits. Or you can Google Sitting with Spirits Bob Dotto. You're smart. You got this. And if you want to seek refuge from the wild madness of the contemporary mythological landscape, come get warm by the fire. That is, this podcast is a ritual by becoming a ritual participant at patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. A magical sacrifice of $4.20 or $6.66 will bring you into our unruly flock and open the gates of magical hypnotic bonus content that I'll be making far more of now that I'm not living out of a backpack. But fellow travelers, before we part ways, I thought that you, like me, might have been intrigued by Bob's list of Christian radicals and marginal groups that he mentioned towards the end of the episode, so I figured I'd do you a favor and list them out once more for your convenience. They were the Adamites, Ranters, Diggers, Levelers, Muggletonians, that's right, Muggle like Harry Potter Muggle, and Brethren of the Free Spirits. So whether you want to dive into the history of Christian radicals or you're just looking for a cool new band name, that's your list. And now all you free spirits, dancing in the blaze of a billion suns, go now and preach the words of magic that reside in your heart, so that everyone far and wide might know the sacred truth. I believe in you. Your magic is real. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, out of thieves, wild cord on my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to 